Hi there. This is the MIT Comparative Media Studies and Writing Podcast. I'm Andrew Whitaker. Let's jump right on into this week's recording with Mount Holyoke College's Kimberly Brown. With just the mention that next Friday, May 18th, we have our last event of the semester when our science writing grad students present their theses. That is open to the public too, so join us in the MIT Student Center between 10 a.m. and 5 p.m., and we'll live stream it on our YouTube channel. Check cmsw.mit.edu for details. Now on to Professor Brown and her talk on U.S. media coverage, especially photography, of the final year of South African apartheid. Um, I'm Heather Hendershot, Director of Graduate Studies for Comparative Media Studies, and our speaker today is Kimberly Juanita Brown, who's Assistant Professor of English and Africana Studies at Mount Holyoke College. Uh, her research engages the side of the visual as a way to negotiate the parameters of race, gender, and belonging. And her book, uh, The Repeated Body, Slavery's Visual Resonance in the Contemporary, examines slavery's profound ocular construction and the presence of absence of seeing in relation to the plantation space and the women who existed there. Uh, that book was, was published by Duke University Press in what year? 2015. 2015, recently. Uh, she's currently working on a second book <coughs> tentatively titled they're Dead Among Us, Photography, Melancholy, and the Politics of the Visual, um, which is a, a book project that will examine images of the dead in the New York, New York Times in 1994 from four geographies, South Africa, Rwanda, uh, Rwanda Sudan, and Haiti. Um, and this year, she is the Martin Luther King Jr. Visiting Assistant Professor, uh, hosted by MIT Literature and MIT Women's and Gender Studies. So. Thank you. So I want to thank the Comparative Media Studies Writing Program for inviting me to give what is my final MIT talk. I know, right? <laughs> Seven. <laughs> um, and thank you all for being here today. I really appreciate it. Uh, there will be a few graphic images. I will not show them for very long. Okay. Can everyone hear me? Good. There's a photograph from 1993 that I've been thinking about since 2006 when I first saw it. I've written about it and I've often returned to it as a point of origin for my current research project. People who know me know that I spend what I consider to be a great deal of time fixating on one still image until I know what it's trying to tell me. This photograph is still speaking to me for the difficult work it engages the absent presence of global anti-blackness it presents, and the implications it has for those who view it. It is a difficult image to see. In March 1993, white South African photographer Kevin Carter travels to what is now South Sudan to photograph the civil war taking place there. He happens upon a site that arrests him, and he uses his camera to document it, a vulture patiently waiting as a child struggles to make it to a food camp a kilometer away. In the next few months, the image will become a symbol of the devastation that war brings to ordinary humans. He will win the Pulitzer Prize, but viewers will have questions about the ethics of photographing the suffering of others, and his answers will be insufficient. And so here, we're going to have one of his friends and his um, former girlfriend talk about this critique that people have of the image. Uh, you see, 
Democratic Vulture Pinscher. Yeah, it took me like a month to realize the other side of the coin. That a lot of people weren't seeing this great image for its greatness. They were seeing it as a Kevin failure to save the kid. And that pissed me off out of life. If that picture hadn't played, today we still wouldn't know how spouse you know. Became the catalyst for incredible awareness for change. And therefore, the people were actually confronting him on the level of, hey, shouldn't you have helped the children? That was bad. That was evil. That was man being nasty. several talks just going through that scene. But I want to spend a moment here to consider the implications that exist within and beyond the frame of the photograph. If that picture hadn't played today, we still wouldn't know how to spell Sudan. And then the, he wept over comments, he was shattered. In the 2005 documentary, The Death of Kevin Carter, Casualty of the Bang Bang Club, Director Dan Krauss interviews photojournalists, writers, and editors who worked for news media outlets during the violent decades of apartheid. What strikes me each time I watch the film is, more than 10 years after the end of the regime, there is such a lack of racial self-reflection by the participants. Johannesburg is described as a romantic space of tension and excitement that abruptly recalibrates itself in order to make room for another possibility. That possibility is foreclosed since it, since it would necessitate intimacies that have, at the very least, 50 years of structured refusal. But then again, these people are also mourning. They are mourning the loss of one of their own, Carter, who committed suicide months after receiving the Pulitzer for what will always be his most famous photograph. When trying to think about what divides the space of photographic possibility from one viewer to another, I remember the photograph is intertwined with this documentary. And so it's first, the poster that I saw, didn't know that there was a documentary about Carter, watched the documentary about a year after I found out about the photograph, and then decided I, I was going to write about this image. Of course, this consideration is for the benefit of others. To photograph is to frame, Susan Sontag writes, and to frame is to exclude. Excluded from this photograph through the eventual understanding of Carter's psychological limitations is any investment in the humanity of the child. It matters that a white South African from a space of relative privilege travels to Sudan 
and returns with this image. So this in part is what I've written about this photograph, and I'm going to read that section. This photograph boasts a long and voluptuous after-history through Carter's authorship and the illusion of a discourse of the awful for the child through the photograph's duplication. The image completes the meta-narrative of, of oblivion that conquest and empire, civil unrest, and geographical circumstance have begun. With this one photograph, famine has a savior, and that savior is the white witness. I ask myself often, what is the desire embedded in the presentation of images like this one? Why is it that no matter how many of these photographs circulate, there is always space for more, as if blackness aligned with death? is an unrelenting cycle of pleasure that white supremacy demands and depends upon. Then I ask myself about refusal, abstraction, and the politics of the visual that we live with today. I try to locate my ocular engagement within this space. My talk today is a continuation of this engagement. What is the work of enclosure that proximity engenders? So the poster, this is the original poster. The poster is then updated. I'm assuming people wrote and said something to the directors or the producers, because a year later, when it was nominated for an Academy Award, it's a different poster entirely that you see. But both of these are still, um, both posters are still on the internet. How have viewers been trained to see in the sliver of space between one person and another, contemporary photographic elision and mortality's hyperpresence? Because there is a failure of understanding for everyone who's interviewed in that 27-minute film to understand the subjectivity of the girl in the photograph. They're really just there to think about Carter. And Carter's daughter, who's, I want to say she's 16 at the time that she's interviewed, she's a small child when he dies, she says that the, in, her, um, in her mind, the the world is the vulture, and the child is her father. They, we, inhabit knowledge that the black body is a sign of imminent death, Christina Sharp writes in In the Wake on Blackness and Being. And with this immediacy comes a violent repetition of fluid temporality and a discursive trajectory of movement and stasis. How are these images constructed? What progress do they refuse? I'm moving between these spaces, temporal elongation and quotidian frigidity, fragility, in order to understand how global obsolescence is articulated through black embodiment. Decades mark South Africa's experiment with racial apartheid through photography and ocular conundrum. From 1948, when the white supremacist National Party is voted into power, until 1994, when apartheid officially ends, and Nelson Mandela is elected president, photography centralizes the way the world learned about the violence that accompanied the apartheid regime. Since 1994 is a significant year in South Africa's racial trajectory, my book project, which is currently just called Morchavivum, no, no semicolon, no, no colon, no after. Um, I don't think it'll work, but here we are. Um, Morchavivum opens here in the, in the geographic space of fluctuating sovereignties and mired in deep interlocking histories. In many ways, Ashil Mbembe writes, our world remains a world of races, whether we admit it or not. He continues, although this fact is often denied, the racial signifier is still, in many ways, 
the inescapable language for the stories people tell about themselves, about their relationship with the other, about memory, and about power. Decades mark this terrain of inescapable language with the violence enacted by the apartheid regime and thus pulls the viewer into the frame. Gelatin silver prints created during this time present South Africa as a space of binary opposition, black and white, negative and positive, black and white, negative and positive. Something about photography's originary construction, dark rooms, interior versus exterior, reinforces a racialized binary that gets played out symbolically. This talk will ponder the presence or lack thereof of black subjectivity as it exists in the ocular space of what I am calling the Morcha Vivum. So I'm defining this in multiple ways, and this is just one of the ways that I'm defining this project and defining this term. I, um, I looked up the, the word for, I was looking for something that said, live forever, and I came up, I found Semper Vivum, and then I assumed uh, mistakenly that Morcha Vivum already existed as a word. The Morcha Vivum, in my definition, is the imagistic documentary dividing line of death's proximity to blackness that must be continually negotiated by artists, writers, and cultural practitioners. It is the voyage through death to life upon these shores that Robert Hayden's poem, Middle Passage, presents as a thematic organizing principle of slavery's life and slavery's afterlife. Semper Vivum, on the other hand, orders the structure of whiteness as the visual corollary of a kind of racial elongation of human life, the ocular production of the live forever. So the idea or the concept is through the Semper Vivum, you know that white people are encased in safety photographically because of who is encased in the photograph, not safe. So even though this is a really famous lynching photograph and the bodies are removed, people know, you know that this is a lynching photograph. Right? So people know that this photograph exists and they know that two black men are being, were murdered here. Opening in 2001, South Africa's Apartheid Museum is the first of its kind, a kind of live forever for a different sort. Located in Johannesburg, the museum's ambitious design is meant to signal the better future of a post-apartheid world. Inside the structure, visitors are meant to experience the racial stratification of the regime as soon as they enter the museum. Admission cards produce a binary of white and non-white identity in order to critique apartheid's classification system. Your ticket to the museum has randomly classified you as either white or non-white, the ticket holder is informed. They are then instructed to use the entrance to the museum in accordance with the ticket classification. The entrances are separated by this binary logic, and so visitors immediately perform privilege or racial subjugation based on the statistical whimsy of an entrance card. And I found it striking that months later I couldn't remember if I had to go through the white or non-white doorway, and then I, I'm assuming that it was non-white, because I would have remembered if it were white, I think. <clears throat> but it was striking to me that I, didn't, I couldn't remember, which makes me think it was the non-white door. So you go through the two doors, white or non-white, and you end up in the same place. So I'm not really sure how it's supposed to function as an experiment. The second person allows for a familiar intimacy to float just above the surface and hover close at hand, with an uncanny ability to reinforce the very hierarchy it purports to deconstruct white visitors 
in a ubiquitous consolidation may have their whiteness reified by an experiment in memory making that rhetorically orders what was initially a juridical practice, 2001. <coughs> Seven years after the end of the apartheid regime, a museum opens to relegate the system to the past, and it is still participating in this endeavor. And so here I will say that I am probably not the best person to ask because I do not know what the solution is supposed to be when you're trying to address the trauma of particular subjectivities, but you're also trying to make sure that enough people come through the museum space and experience it. I don't know how this is supposed to be done. What I have seen um, in the few spaces that attempt to do this work <coughs> is that they still seem to be invested in white comfort. And so to me, it cannot really function as it's supposed to function if white people are entering this space and they're still feeling very comfortable. And there were a few black people in the museum the day that I went. I think we were all tourists. And I asked my taxi driver when I was going back to the hotel if he had been to this museum and he laughed and I did not expect that. And then he asked me how much it cost to get in there. And so it turns out that how much it costs is like, I wanna say 25% of the monthly um, salary of your average black South African. So I don't think that they intend for them to enter that space with any meaningful engagement. <coughs> the temporal framework, I cannot, Hold on. The temporal framework of apartheid gives the second half of the 20th century a precise visual location through which to process the photography of anti-blackness projected against a world stage. For nearly 50 years, documentary photographs punctuated media coverage of the violence that apartheid engendered from forced removals in places like Sophia Town the stripping away of citizenship rights for black South Africans, Afrikaans being chosen as the official language in schools, the renaming of geographies from indigenous African names to Dutch European names, the ceaseless murders, beatings, and arrests. It's a precise marking that troubles the discourse embedded within, namely, histories of empire, African studies, visual culture studies, black studies, and gender studies. It is to trouble what Tina Camp calls the lower frequencies of transfiguration enacted at the level of the quotidian in the everyday traffic of black folks with objects that are both mundane and special photographs. So I decided not to show you um, these photographs because they are so graphic and because when I visited the museum, I was struck, and that's the second time I interacted with apartheid images, videos, and photographs, but I was struck by how many graphic images of black people were being shown and almost none or none that I saw of white people in any state of um, corporeal injury or destruction, right? So that also, I didn't know what to do with that so I decided not to um, show any of those images. My current book project engages the relationship between photography, black subjectivity, and empire. And these are the chapters so far. The book examines images of the dead in the New York Times from four geographies, South Africa, Rwanda, Sudan, and Haiti. I focus on a single year, 1994, in order to grapple with the register of photographic residents moving from the 19th century through the 20th century. My project will consider the place of melancholy 
when the subject of mourning is black. This means I am often asked to read beyond an assumed viewership in order to find this register. Morchavivam constructs the advent of photography as uniquely positioned to produce the fungibility, to use Sidia Hartman's term, that manages to continually frame the contours of black subjectivity. For the book project, I am interested in how viewers of media imagery receive and process images of the dead, particularly when those in the photographs of the dead and dying are black. So I'm often asking people if they can remember a time when someone in the last 20, 25 years, when someone who, was, who could be read as white was on the cover of a daily newspaper, that they could remember dead. And so far, uh, people go back to like Holocaust. They go back to like 1940s and not, not anything since then, so far. So it's not to say that it doesn't exist, it's just that people can't remember because that's not what happens here. So for the project, the vast majority of images of um, dead people come from Haiti, the fewest from Rwanda. So there's nobody there during the time taking photographs, so everything is after the genocide takes place, and for Haiti, it's a U.S. intervention in Haiti, military's there, photographers are there. What I am calling a cartography of the ocular, moving from national location to national location, but always under the cover of blackness, has very specific dimensions. A viable and recognizable enemy, the failure of other people's sovereignty, and the ability to reinforce imperial domination across the world. This cartography defines the compartments of a centralizing question of this project. Is the visuality of violence against black subjects germane to the structure of modern humanity? Do we need to see it all the time? Within the unsettling history of photography in the United States, for instance, images of the other, temporally defined, situate the world of those who belong in stark contrast to those who do not. Usually, it is corporeal display that creates this chasm wrapping the world of belonging and unbelonging around the contours of a photographic print. By the end of the 19th century, a ready viewership is eager to evaluate, analyze, and dissect, marking reservoirs of meaning within each specified category. Photography came to establish and delimit the terrain of the other, Alan Sekula writes, to define both the generalized look, the typology, and the contingent insistence of deviance and social pathology. The social and moral hierarchy, according to Sekula, that develops in the first few decades of photography divides itself between the public and the private sphere, between, quote, private, the private moment of sentimental individuation and two other more public looks, a look up at one's betters and a look down at one's inferiors, end quote. Sekula is commenting on the emergence in the 19th century of the visually regulated figure of criminal suspicion and the police photography that enhanced the particularities of acceptable citizenship. The rise of eugenics alongside photography in the latter part of the 19th century made legible and multiple the anxieties of Western modernity. So uh, here is where I would say that my first book is concerned with how slavery is made palatable through black women's bodies and it has a photographic register. In other words, it's concerned or interested in photography because there is a way that contemporary configurations of anti-black violence don't exist with black women at the center as if nothing ever happened to black women and as if nothing will ever happen to black women. And we know this to not be the case. So like Morchavivam, 
My first book is invested in what is seen and what is unseen, a denial of vulnerability that has at its core a desire to see black women as superhuman so that slavery can be made palatable, its violence less visible. So here also is where I say that the process of thinking through the evidentiary, which is usually where people go is to say, we need these images because without these images we will not know what took place. And I wonder about that because the testimonies, the documents, the images, the way that black women and black feminist scholars in particular has um, endlessly tried to present their particular kind of um, productive deployment of subjectivity and that is always refused at some level. I don't know that that would be the case. Like, I don't know that evidence is the thing that marks this space as evidentiary. So we have, now that we've seen so many moving images of black people dying in the United States in particular, it hasn't exactly proven the point in any um, legal sense. So I'm not sure that, that that is a thing that works. Without my research in slavery studies, I might not have had to contemplate the trajectory of movement between slavery's demise and the fungibility Sadia Hartman presents as a cloaking feature of black life. Those moments of release and refusal, the terms of black subjectivity in the wake, as Christina Sharp names them, ask of us that we offer interpretations that preserve the humanity of the subjects that we study. Morcha Vivam traces the history of photography from its emergence in the 19th century to its digital facilitation at the end of the 20th century. This is a trace that I believe will allow me to explore the photographic event of mechanized production that Walter Benjamin writes about in the early part of the 20th century. How might we center the production of photography by considering the import and utility of black subjectivity within the project of empire? This is a question for photography studies and post-colonial black studies, and it will be the main intervention of my work. In the popular imaginary concerning this series of decades, photographic images solidify the stark binary logic placing black South Africans outside the orientation of self-possession and of sovereignty. In 2012, the International Center of Photography in New York City opened an exhibition, Rise and Fall of Apartheid, Photography and the Bureaucracy of Everyday Life. The exhibit featured an art piece by Hans Hockey with a post-mortem photograph of political activist Steve Biko. I think it's an, aut an autopsy photograph. The center image of a triptych, Biko's dead body, is bracketed by images of living, vibrant stage performers from the Montreal Opera. They are as alive in the photographs as Biko is dead. Though certainly a protest image, this is called um, Voici Alcan. Voici Alcan is also visually reproducing the violence that it seeks to indict in order to highlight the constancy of black death against its binary variable of white life. Documentary images, even when in art productions, offer black suffering as a way to understand the aftermath of empire. So when I saw the exhibition at the ICP, I sat across from that um, piece for quite a while because I, I'm trying to make sense of it. I wasn't familiar with the artist. I had to do some research around that. And it was one of, I'm not sure how many images were, were shown for that exhibition, but it was one of maybe 85, 100 images that were that graphic presented in the museum and there were no images of white people where they were. Um, they, it was like a scene, a, a series of 
very peaceful encounters. An occasional group of white people would be protesting apartheid. Other than that, only black people were being violated. By 1994, South Africa exists within the structures of a photographic imaginary as a symbolic register of work that is presumed to be going smoothly, or coming to an end, you would say. In the latter half of the year, the new nation being reformulated considers what it might mean for a white minority to be on the margins of the visible sphere of political power. Conversations about the reconfiguration of the national flag, the falling of monuments, the renaming of streets and bridges fill the op-ed pages in the New York Times. And a lot of these op-eds say things like, and we can't name every bridge Mandela Bridge, and we can't name every street Mandela Street. So they're trying to figure out what to do next in terms of naming places. Photographs are disinvented, disinvested of the previous racial tensions famously accompanying media outlets, and words replace imagery. So lots and lots and lots of op-eds. But even this has a past and a past tense. In a 1976 photograph by Peter Magubani, two women stand near the left of the center of the frame of the photograph. They orient the eye of the viewer. The center contains no body, but there is a body on the ground, someone no longer alive, but occupying space. Wrapped in plaid blankets and each exposing one hand that emerges through the sleeve of space the blanket provides, the women stand. Someone has died the evening before this early morning shot was taken. One woman is turned away from the body. One is turned in the direction of the body. She looks down and over. The violence of the evening before is both indexical and evidentiary. Three men frame the outer edges of the photograph, providing it with corporeal mar margins. Sorry. One on the left and two on the right. One of the men attends to the body on the ground. One gazes back at the photographer. The last man turns his gaze away from both ocular possibilities. Together, their bodies center the two rows of women encased within the boundary of the image. Ten people, nine living, one dead. The inverse truth, Courtney R. Baker writes, that bodies that are looked at are also bodies that look, is an important understanding. In fact, this image is a circular conundrum of photographic meaning. It is movement and stillness, distance and proximity, shadow and light, and doesn't exist in a newspaper um, at this time. In the photograph, we see an archive at work, and it is an image that frames the intent of an empire within a nation, invisible though it may seem. It is a scene of temporal fluidity and intertextual vision of the layering of black subjectivity. Each of the people present attends or avoids the sight of the body. The body itself is a problem, its placement in the foreground of the image, its status among the dead, and its presence in close proximity to those gathered about it. As the photo intimates, the space between blackness and death is too often negotiated by those who are precarious themselves. If we think about the intersection of race, violence, and photography codifying black subjectivities within and beyond the framework of the corporeal, the role of the witness is of particular importance. The viewer of, for instance, newspaper imagery as an after witness yields to the on-site witness of the violence taking place. The people photographed alongside the maimed and injured, their bodies providing the extended envisioning of projected removal. I want to think about the containment of space within these photographs as a solidification of racialized violence, violence that is part of the imagistic archive producing and extending the cartography of indifference, 
violence that is as prevalent photographically as it is resistant to its own unpacking. This often marks the temporal, temporal conflation as it is rendered here as pre, post, and neo-colonial, inventing a lineage of similar imagery across disparate locations framed to invoke the slippery nature of other people's sovereignty. In the colonial world, France Fanon laments, the emotional sensitivity of the native is kept on the surface of his skin like an open sore. This open sore is rendered visually as a reproduced, documented, um, I'm sorry, as this is rendered visually as reproduced, documented assaults against black flesh. And it is this sore that photography has the ability to reopen and infect. A visual, a visual tether of unbelonging joins the men and women in this image to the person who's just recently passed from life to death. And this is what renders the photographic scene with its taut emotive extension. Not one person in the image will voluntarily cross the threshold of this death. Stopping inches away from the body, they address it as its own cruel visual display. They both recognize and resist the demarcation of photographic fungibility and the imprint of too many inculcations of temporal duress. This scene blankets the Magabani photograph with diagonal constituencies as black subjectivity takes on the veil of witnessing, crowding out the space between each of the figures in the photograph while also closing in on the borders of the photo and creating an insular space. This is the mechanism through which black South Africans are asked to register eligibility of citizenship even as removal is taking on both literal and metaphorical dimensions. Within state-sanctioned violence and subjection, there is the desire for participatory engagement rendered visually. Photographs aid in this arrangement. And this is just one example of the difference between how black people are presented in Time Magazine and how white people are presented in Time Magazine with the same, within the same time frame and at the same apartheid structure. Here we see the first synthesis between massacre and bureaucracy, writes Achille Mbembe in his essay, Necropolitics, that incarnation of Western rationality. Magubani plays on the texture of this demarcation between massacre and bureaucracy, playing itself out in the townships outside of Johannesburg in the 60s and the 70s. Life and death, movement and stillness, proximity and distance, shadows falling on earth, everything converges in this image, clashes actually, as it appears, the photograph subjects mark the visual dissonance with the distance of their bodies away and apart from that of the decedent, but close enough to register the collective interiority of this loss. The signification of transnational blackness in documentary form, and this is my project is prior to September 11th because it changes kind of drastically after September 11th, was one that invited a vision of corporeal obliteration, fetishized it photographically, and release the imagery as an ocular engagement recognizably compelling to a mass audience already racially protected. The viewer's investment extends the proliferation of the maimed or contained black world subject, offering the viewer to slaughter with the eye those who have been visually slaughtered out of time. Soweto Uprising is a photograph of temporal conflation and elongation, an image of the witness, the voyeur, and the victim a photograph of blurring visual constituencies, the figure, the subject, the pawn. In the temporal demarcation of 1976, when this photograph is taken, 
we can also imagine the repetition of 1960 and the Sharpeville Massacre and 1994, the end of apartheid. We thus live in an era, Ariella Azale contends, in which it is difficult to conceive of one single human activity that does not use photography or at least provide an opportunity for it to be deployed in the past, present, or future. The subjects in the photograph manage the visual dissonance of a dead body and enact past, present, and future in one frame. The past includes the Sharpeville massacre, the present, the Soweto uprising, and the future anticipates the demise of the system of apartheid in South Africa in 1994. There's a disturbing history of photographic violence attending black subjects throughout the African diaspora and within the African continent. In the US, these images conjure up a cartography of unbelonging placing dead black bodies at the center of a photographic divide. From the space of the gaze, the viewer participates in what, in what W.J.T. Mitchell calls the ocular violence of racism by observing photographic display of disjuncture. Magubani's photograph parses out the articulations of gender that are not always present in the available archive. The veneer of safety within a, a category of unbelonging cannot sustain itself here. We know that an absence of acknowledged inflictions of violence blanket the imagery involving black women doing damage to their subjectivities. This photograph framed through the two women standing closest to the body marks this precise proximity and its gendered pronouncement as central to the composition, composition of the image as the women are central to the framework of violence and removal situated within this space of national violence. Magabani's image details the illustration of violated bodies that by this date in 1976 have become part and parcel of the haunting of colonial and post-colonial photographic practices. The photographer framing the site does so after state-imposed imprisonment, violations of citizenship, and financial, financial sanctions. He says he, spends, he spent a total of 586 days in solitary. He's repeatedly arrested. He spent six months in ordinary jail. And he says he spent five years as a ghost, so five years he could not take any photographs at all. He was forbidden. And he was never convicted of any crime. Locating his professional isolation, juridical removement, and imprisonment within the elongated structure of South Africa's temporal shifts, Magabani marks time through the containing register of a silenced visual archive, his own. And this is now the property of the ICP in New York. They own this photograph. And so maybe a theory of photographic distrust is born here out of three centuries of the visual culture of racial hegemony, a space of black exceptionality combining Orlando Patterson's articulation of natal alienation with Charles Mills and Sadia Hartman's delineation of the borders of black citizenship. In the symbolic register of, photo of the photographic imaginary, the empire still holds sway. France Fanon writes, this explosive population growth, those hysterical masses, those blank faces, those shapeless bodies, these children who seem not to belong to anyone, all this forms part of the colonial vocabulary. What Sadia Hartman refers to as the slipperiness of empathy within the structural resonance of American slavery has Paul Gilroy's version of post-colonial melancholia at its core. And in that slippage, Christina Sharp maintains, is also the multiple ways that oppressive social systems, apartheid, ethnocentrism, and slavery drive people in all places in the power structure, mad. In this madness, 
there are the unstated performative deployments of projected rage, poised and perfected for nearly <coughs> 200 photographic years. I'm interested in the visuality of this deployment, a visuality that has its lens turned toward the proliferation of specific pained and non-living subjects and the racial aftermath of this indifference. In these moments of carnivorous voyeurism, we allow the image to culturally inform the very thing we see, regardless of the, the medium through which we see it. What the camera does, John Berger argues, and what the eye itself can never do, is fix the appearance of that event. It removes its appearance from the flow of appearances, and it preserves it, not perhaps forever, but for as long as the film exists. If we were to negotiate the terms of not perhaps forever, there would be a distinct racial dialogue that routinely places blackness outside the periphery of photographic citizenship. But my interest lingers here, where two women stand near the left of the center of the frame of the photograph and orient the eye of the viewer. The center contains no body, but there is a body on the ground, someone no longer alive but occupying space. This is a photograph of shadows on earth, of the singular mandates and imperatives that find their way into an image, whether the viewer sees a body, a subject, a figure, an empire, or the faint outline of the imprint of loss. Thanks. Sandy. Can I ask what the Bang Bang Club is? Yeah, should have said that. Okay, so the Bang Bang Club is a group of South African photographers who are known for entering da dangerous areas, and therefore that's how they get the name. So the casualty of the Bang Bang Club is because they see a lot, they photograph a lot, and they're always in a space of danger. And so the idea is that they don't. There are two of them who are still alive of the four or five who were in the group. Um, yeah. So they're, they're semi-famous. There's a movie about them. I think it's called The Bandit Club. Oh. <laughs> yes. Um, I wonder if you could talk about your use of the, your sort of uh, recutting and curation of the Soweto image mm -hmm. and how you, uh, you opened with the full image and then you showed a crop version with sort mm -hmm. of only the top half of the body showing. Mm -hmm. And then the third image was broken into quadrants, mm -hmm. and then the final one was back to the full image. And I think I get it. <laughs> <laughs> I get it too. But, the, but the quadrants image mm -hmm. is a little um, yeah. less uh, obvious to me mm -hmm. um, because it, it takes out the, the image of the, of the body. Right. Which Mm -hmm. um, and, and another question that's separate, but is about the, um, the very famous um, uh, photograph you showed that was reproduced in Citizen and American Lyric. Mm -hmm. And I don't think I'd seen that one without the bodies in it. Oh. They've been mm -hmm. uh, digitally removed, I take it, in that right. imprint in the book. Mm -hmm. And I was just curious if you could describe the sort of context of how the mm -hmm. um, editor of the book described that. And oh, okay. Okay, I'll start with the, um, if I can, with the, with this image. So. I presented not this image, but the actual archive I'm working with, and I have to decide whether or not I show the image. I've decided I'm not going to put them in the book, so I'm less and less comfortable actually presenting them. So I showed one with the body cropped out. It's a series of women. It's in, it's in Port-au-Prince, 
and it's women and they're all dressed in white and they're um, standing around a body and they're, they're anguished. I left that and I cut off the body to do the presentation and a photographer was at that conference. It was a, I think it was called, oh, I can't remember, um, doing photography <laughs> um, conference. So the photographer said, use the image or don't use the image, don't crop it. So as a photographer, he said, you know, use it or don't use it, but don't do this. But I couldn't find a way to negotiate what I was attempting to say and for how long I was attempting to say it and, and to leave the body, even a body that's covered, um, up for 10, 20, 15 minutes. So I have been cropping. When I do this, so this, this one in particular, I wanted to just isolate all of the people instead of um, having the entire image structured in front since I already had that. I wanted to isolate the people and their separate spaces, the spaces that they occupy in the photograph. Um, so I don't always do this, but I definitely end up cropping out the body. For the Claudia Rankin image, um, Rankin asked Getty, who owns this image, if she could have somebody crop out the bodies. At first, they didn't, they didn't want the image to be reproduced. They were hesitant. They didn't know what she was going to do with it. And then they allowed her to have someone crop out the bodies. So I've been using this because it's, it's an easier image to speak through without the bodies present. And because it's so famous, the bodies, I think, are not necessarily there. So I'm not sure how the person that she hired to do that did that work, but that's what she had done. Right. right. And then she had to ask permission to cut the bodies out because they didn't want it altered. But technically, she, I mean, she could have just removed, she could have altered the image under the mm. uh, uh, explanation that it was a fair use. In other words, mm. she was transforming the image if she right. makes a new argument about it in the text of the book. Huh. I wonder if that, maybe that was a consideration for the press and not as much her. I'm not sure. I just heard her speak about it at a talk. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, thank you so much for the talk. Um, I'm thinking about um, two years ago there was a, um, um, a show of VR work and three, spiritual video and 360 video that the mm -hmm. documentary lab um, organized here at MIT. And several, um, several of the pieces, one in particular was um, a 360 video um, documentary piece um, that was um, it was about um, people who, who live in a village that survived an Ebola outbreak. Mm. Um, I was like watching this, you know, this piece, and it's it was very very powerful. It follows this young woman who's you know, she lost both of her parents and mm -hmm. so on and so forth. It doesn't show bodies. It shows people who survive. But there's mm -hmm. there's scenes where it's um, you know there's a cemetery scene and so on mm -hmm. and so forth. So the, the presence of you know black death is everywhere in the in the piece. Right. And then the way that the that that not that piece alone, but but 
genre. Like, um, there's a whole discourse emerging. You know, there's the empathy machine right. frame, and there's a whole conversation about you know, virtual reality, spherical video, yeah. immersive experiences are going to activate new parts of the brain and produce different types of empathy. So mm -hmm. I'm watching this piece, and I'm thinking, this is this is a voyeurism machine, not an empathy mm -hmm. machine. Right. And I wonder if you could reflect a little bit on these emerging technologies and forms of representation mm -hmm. and what work that does or doesn't do or how it, how mm -hmm. it links into this, um, mm -hmm. this type of analysis that you're doing, yeah. especially as it relates to yeah, the representation of black bodies and black death in these virtual spaces where we're supposed to think, we're supposed to accept that it's okay to do that right. because it's a new technology. Right, right. So I had this conversation recently with graduate students at Emory. We had a seminar on problematic archives. And so I don't think, for instance, that the Carter image should not have been made. I do think that more of a consideration for the humanity of the subject in the photograph, especially after the fact, should have taken place. The students talked about the Civil Rights Museum having, apparently you can go to a counter, sit down, and experience someone beating you, harassing you. Um, it's, uh, the experience is duplicated. And the goal is to see how long you can sit with the machine on feeling everything as, it's, as if it is taking place. So the conversation was about, so a few of them had gone. Um, my intention is to eventually go to the Rights Museum. I don't know if I will do this. But they said it was odd. It felt both false. You, at all times, you know you're safe. Um, and they didn't know what it was for. So again, when I said at the beginning, I don't know what the solution is. I would not know how to produce, how to reproduce this narrative that is a traumatic narrative, how to represent it, and then how to make people feel both uncomfortable and comfortable in a spatial configuration. So I don't know that I would do it that way. I think that's probably not the best way to do it. Because again, the much more subtle version of like getting a non-white card or a white card, um, and then entering the museum, like two doors side by side, and you end up in the same space. It's a completely other side. I, I don't think people know what to do. So I, I will probably go to the lynching museum I want to see how that's done. I'm not sure from the images because it's like, I'm not sure, what are they? Are they like long and they're hanging from the ceiling? <sighs> because, you know, how would the lynching museum, how would it look if they tried to duplicate bodies hanging? That would not work, right? But then how do you like get to the totality of the event and its ongoing implications? without doing something that's going to make people feel really uncomfortable. So that is to say, I, I wouldn't say that's the way that I would go, but I mean, the new technologies, I'm concerned about that, but I don't know. I don't know about the other side of this as well. Even archival um, work is also kind of damaging. So we discussed the Zeely photographs, the daguerreotypes, or the, the, the set of images, not daguerreotypes, the set of images that were made that Harvard now owns, that have been released basically everywhere, um, and that now, and you know, these are of enslaved people, and you could not give permission, and, and the images to me, um, 
are not images that should be shown everywhere. Again, not to say that I'm opposed to the fact that they exist, but why they're being shown, why they're being duplicated, show them the cover of the book, Delia's Tears, and like, why do you have an enslaved woman on the cover? Why is the book called Delia's Tears? What are we supposed to do with that? I don't know. But, so I, that's all I'll say. I don't have the answer, but I don't know who has the answer back here. Thank you for that, and that was really interesting when you talked about Carter photographing his other work, the other work itself actually was really interesting. Um, and I'm just curious, you know, that, that Carter, very iconic Carter photograph gets swept in with a long history of uh, photojournalism, um, you know, at least dating back to Susan Sontag, that's critiquing the other thing or the other, and then mm -hmm. goes through our current moment, this, um, this question has been brought up a lot, as you know, in the context of photographs from Syria and right. migrants. Yes, so I, I, I also hear that a lot. And um, I was a graduate student when I went to a, I think it was called Thinking Photography Again conference. And there were a lot of uh, photojournalists there. And part of the conversation was, what role does the photographer have in um, some of these images in their production? And you can't control where they move after you release them to a news media agency. My question is always, what is the evidence that white people die? They die. But we would not present it in a newspaper or a magazine that way, no matter what the circumstance. And I'm talking about basically the United States, right? So even after September 11th, when people jumped off of the, out of windows, right? You could see those images. Now they're really hard to find. You can't even make out who they are, but you know they're white because you haven't seen them circulating. That's how I know they're white. So, so that's, that's what I have to say about that. And, and we do know, for instance, white people are killed by the police. You've not seen these images. Have you seen these images? You've not seen these images. They wouldn't show these images. Why wouldn't they show these images? Because that's not what we do here. But we do show images of black people, always the default register. And then after September 11th, it's South Asian, Arab, anybody who can be read as Middle Eastern or not. Right? So we do that. So after September 11th, this is a completely different argument. I couldn't do that project. That's somebody else's project. But there's like a proliferation. The, the child who um, ended up on the shore, I saw that photograph as the image used for a conference at the University of Pennsylvania. Would you see that if that child were registered as white? Would that be a thing that, you know, that we would do, that, that we would see? I haven't seen it so far. I'm still waiting, too. So that's usually, that's, that's my only response. If you have a repeated um, engagement that is severely one-sided, people are very much used to black people dying. That's why the videos now don't shock people as much as, like, you're really watching a snuff film, but you're also watching the news. 
and I don't know how that can be re reconciled. And I don't see that for any other group of people. And again, police officers, war, fires, famine, murders, all these things take place, but that's not how the archive is constructed. Did you have you? Yeah, I was just gonna say the whole, the argument that it's supposed to spark outrage, but the preponderance of it sparks, it, it engenders indifference. Right. And then just today circulating was the cover of the way the opioid, the, uh, the right. addiction thing, the, the New York Times Magazine. Yes. Of uh, the white baby, mm -hmm. the mother, and it's a crisis countering mm -hmm. it to the same time period, actually. Yeah. The 90s. Exactly. The late, the late 80s and early 90s of crack cocaine mm -hmm. um, and the images and the way children were um, used as tools in that because there was right. the idea of crack babies. Right. And, and right. the abandonment of parenthood because of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's all interconnected, right? It's, it's 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 current in 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 many spheres, not just in mm -hmm. direct relation to black death, but in just to just black life. Right, exactly. Yeah. So there's um, so much in the archive that has to do with black people being so close to death that it you know it's just it's imminently it's on its way, and we don't have that for white people. And again, white people die. It's not that they don't die. And it's not the same level of precarity. It's, it's not equal in any way. But there are way more white people in this country. So why do we have such a small archive of anything that looks like their, their bodies being violated in any way visually? It's something that would not take place. The woman who, there's a woman who's on the scene during the Newtown. Is it Newtown? Is it children? Connecticut? Yes. Um, she has rolls of film. She's taking photographs as people, as people are carrying children out. They're injured, they are dead, and you have never seen them. And you will never see them. And not because they're children, because we know that's not a dividing line for other people, right? You'll never see them because you're not supposed to see them. I suppose the historical exception might be um, the Civil War, which is so very, very heavily photographed slow, it was, it was always dead bodies, mm -hmm. so couldn't capture motion. And um, all the photos I've seen of the Civil War were white bodies, but mm -hmm. I'm wondering if I'm missing something, if there's also, um, I mean, no, all I those images are about race on some level, given what yeah. the Civil War was about, but I'm wondering if there's also an archive of, of black bodies during the Civil War that has not circulated, perhaps because mm -hmm. the tragedy of the Civil War is the death of the white bodies, and it serves a So I begin there because I'm mildly obsessed with photographs from the Civil War. I ask people who work on this um, archive, photographic archive, if they had seen any photographs of African American soldiers in uniform on battlefields. Just that. I asked if they'd seen, and there were so few of them, on battlefields in uniform. And, and then I asked if they had seen any of these images um, of dead soldiers, if any of them were black. So far, nothing. Went to the Library of Congress and put in my little search. I put in African-American <laughs> soldiers, Civil War. And the Library of Congress actually says, so we don't have a whole lot on this. And then it says, and even if we did, it'd be hard to tell who's black, like who, who's African-American or not. 
So in um, this Republic of Suffering, through Gilpin Faust's book, she talks about how there's an entire process of producing or preserving bodies to return to families during the civil, it gets going during the Civil War. And the number one thing that they're guaranteeing is that the body won't turn black. Wow. <laughs> I know, right? I was like, stay in here. Um, that's something that's so important. So people of means are making sure that the body is returned to them and put on ice. So it's like the beginning of like the um, modern version of funeral practice that we now know today. But they're promising in advertisements that the bodies, we promise to return the white body to you. The body will not turn black. Because, and Foss is saying, imagine how horrified people are to find out that when their white, when their white family members die that they actually turn black during the Civil War, which is, <laughs> right. So, um, so I start there, because I was really interested in the, the hyper-presence of dead bodies, the complete, almost complete absence of black soldiers. I cannot locate them on a battlefield in uniform, except for a few, very few um, exceptions. And they're usually digging graves for other, for white soldiers, or serving officers. Those are, those are the photographs we have. There are one million photographs from, this, from that archive, from the Civil War. So that's something that I think the country wasn't willing to have take place visually. So if we were going to mourn the almost you know, destruction of the country and it's being saved through the war, that cannot happen with black people there participating. So they're just not, not there. So then I wondered why, you know, so at the end of the, then you have reconstruction failing, then you have the series of lynching photographs, then you have, so what is the pleasure that's taking place? It's like white people need to see black people suffering in order to deal with having to live around in any way, shape, or form, African Americans as fellow citizens. And that's what I see being played out across. And so I wanna know what that means at the end of the 20th century when the internet is just going and when film photography is ending and digital photography is about to begin. So, so I, think, I think these images, because there are so many from 94, are supposed to tell black people something really precise about how unwanted they are on the cusp of the 21st century. The same way that lynching photographs was supposed to publicly announce how unwanted black people were at the end of the 19th century on the cusp of the 20th century. There's something swifter, and it's more graphic, and it's not Americans, but there are plenty of African Americans shown on the cover of that newspaper as well, same year. So something is going on there, some kind of communica visual communication. Yeah. So how can we sort of avoid falling into wars of racial when you have just censoring and cropping right. the suffering out of these photos? Because like this is a heinous moment. Mm -hmm. And I think there's not many white folks who are growing up right now who have any idea that there were, you know, postcards about right. families going to lunch and say like picnics. Like that's, that's right. something horrific that I feel like white people should have to confront mm. often, hopefully. Mm -hmm. 
So it feels like cropping them out allows people to sort of hold on to this idea that like, oh, it wasn't so bad in the past. We didn't like mm. go to lynching picnics. Right. Like, yes, people did. Like, yes, they did. the bodies, it feels like we might tilt towards not acknowledging the heinous acts folks were driving right. the last yeah, that's a good point. That is a really good point. So, um, yeah, that's a good point. Because I have not decided, I haven't decided for myself what gets included and what definitely doesn't get included. But the images that I am looking at, there are no white people around. It's just black people. But it's moving through you know, white newspaper spaces with an assumed white viewer. Here, I'm, so for me, this image is it isolates the crowd, and what's striking to me is that in all of the lynching photographs and all of the lynching postcards of all of these images, not one family member has been found. Nobody's claiming their kin. This is the 19th century. This is the early 20th century. These people existed. They mailed these postcards to their family members. Nobody is saying, that's my uncle, that's my cousin, that's my grandfather. I know. <laughs> Find these people, because <laughs> you know they can be found, right? You have people coming out of mines, completely covered in soot, and people are like, nope, that is my great uncle, Jerry. <laughs> and they can't find any of the, nobody is claiming any of these people. That is really striking to me. So if you're going to do something so bold, so brazen, so violent, so public, but you know you never have to be found out, and you know that generations later, you would never be found. That's very America to me. And that's something worth um, exploring. So I haven't figured out, because I, I think I'm at the point where I cannot show any more lynching photographs. And, and also, um, National African American Museum History Culture, it has such a long acronym. Um, the African American History Museum, they have Emmett Till's casket. You know what I hear from black people who go to the museum? I only hear about that casket. It's a lot of conversation about what to do about this thing that is apparently behind the screen. I haven't gone yet. It's behind a screen, but they're like, should I bring my child? You know, everybody feels traumatized. What do you do? I think it's an interesting choice. I wouldn't choose it. I wouldn't put that in the museum to represent Emmett Till. But that's what they did. Now what do you do with that? Yeah, and the follow-up question to that is, what has, what, what proselytizing work has the horror done? Like, what, how right. has it done any conversion work <laughs> yeah. to this point? Who mm -hmm. has it converted at this point? Right. What work has it really so, done? Yeah. So we're back to the evidentiary question. Yeah, yeah. We know it happened. People have told stories. Black people have passed around these narratives. They know what happened. Everybody knows what happened. But what's going to be done based on what evidence is being presented? I don't think it's surprised or shocked anyone. I think we have a high tolerance for white aggression. And I think we have a low tolerance for black life. And that combination is really where we are now. So it wouldn't matter. I don't know what the solution is, but show or don't show, it wouldn't matter. At first, I said I was going to show only the cover of the New York Times. Because I'm like, that's, you know, you can get that anywhere. But some of those covers are, you show them, you wouldn't believe that they would present a person who just died that way. But they do. So now I don't want to do that.
thinking of what happened with the photograph of Emmett Till in his casket that his mother, mm -hmm. I mean, his, his mother insisted the casket be open so that he could be seen. Right. And I think that was not just to be seen by people who were at the service, but to be photographed as, as evidence mm -hmm. that would be proof that would work. Mm -hmm. And you have a reading of that moment of how that might have worked in the context of being at the height of the civil rights movement mm -hmm. versus images that aren't working as evidence to make something change now. Right. So for that, I would point out Sandy Alexander has a reading of Emmett Till's photograph and the other photographs that he, the casket is open. She agrees to have that photographed and moves across, right? Moves internationally. But there are also photographs in the coffin of him not in that state. So it's all part of a conversation. I think the, the museum said that Mamie Till wanted the casket to be in the museum. That's their statement. But there was supposed to be an Emmett Till Museum, and that's where it was supposed to go. So you know, taken out of that context, how does that, because it makes sense for an Emmett Till Museum, but not so, to me, not so much in that space. Sandy? No redirecting. No redirecting. <laughs> Um, so I don't, I don't really work on, on Till as much, so, but I do, I understand what she was attempting to do there. But again, show the image, don't show the image, and it's still going to be. When people ask a question about evidence, I say testimony is evidence, and black people are always willing to tell you what happened to them, and people don't believe testimony given in court by the people who have been harmed. So I don't know what, you know, we have video footage now and people get acquitted. I don't know what we're supposed to, yeah. what, what would work. I just feel like there was a sense of imagery working in the civil rights moment and I don't know if that mm -hmm. was accurate, but yeah. in a sense like showing this, is, is journalism doing really good work yeah. in a way that circulation of, of images today of say, work? So yes and no. So uh, the example I used is Michael Brown is murdered. He's laying in the ground for four hours. It's Twitter. That's the reason we know what happened. One million tweets the New York Times tracks. One million tweets over four days before news media outlets cover this. Without the tweets, we still wouldn't know what happened. And that's people are on the ground, they're tweeting, they're saying, you won't believe this. And you know, the image is moving really swiftly. After a while, Brown's parents ask people to stop showing, showing his body in the ground. But by then, enough tweets have gone out, and, and then it becomes something that can't be ignored. So in that way, it does connect to the way that Mamie Till is like, You're, you know, I'm going to let people see what you did to my child. If she had said, I'm not going to let you, let anybody see this, I don't know that the civil rights movement would not have still, like, the, it, like Emmett Till is, it's a force with or without, I think, the photographs. 
although it, reach, it reaches internationally, you know, it moves in a way that the United States responds, not right now, responds to international shame. And that worked during the Civil Rights Movement, especially with the U.S. trying to tell the Soviet Union how to, how to be a better democracy. And then they, they have evidence to say, this is what you do to your own citizens. So, so I don't know. I think there is a moment photographically where things that were possible then become too much to be contained. But there's still a similar reaction. Like you still cannot get most people to do what it takes. So I, people routinely say that they can't bear to see these images that are sitting on the cover of the New York Times. They're, they've been out there. It's not one. It's like hundreds. And, and then I want to know what that looks like. Do you write a letter to the editor? Do you refuse to buy the newspaper? Do you, do you call your senator? No, people just say, I can't bear it. You can bear it, because clearly it's still happening. And now that we have like so many um, moving images, I don't think this is going to stop anytime soon. There's definitely an audience for it. And it doesn't seem to, to matter how much how much trauma black people have to absorb in order for this information to be presented. So I don't, that is all to say I don't have an answer. I don't know what to do, but I don't think I have to show the images in order to. And there are also for the New York Times plenty of images where people aren't dead, but they're like the, the girl and the vulture. Not dead, but you know. I'm not sure if you're aware that the Montgomery Advertiser, uh, we were just at the opening of the National Memorial Museum in mm -hmm. Alabama, they apologized for printing lynchings and they're really they're yeah. Oh, is that so? So that's wow. That's really profound because you really don't see that. I think that, yeah, that would go a really long way. Wow. I didn't know that. See, now I really have to go because I want to see a place that makes me think this is one way to do it where it could possibly work. And it means, you know, so if African Americans are going to be traumatized and they are, then white people need to feel uncomfortable too. They can't roll through. I think the apartheid museum is it's a pleasurable experience for white people. There's no, there's nothing there. It's very orderly. It's like apartheid system, then it ends, and it was over. And that's not what it was. And the photographs that everybody else received don't say that it was that. It's not the most comfortable experience because you know the, the floor slopes. Oh wow. It's a monument to four thousand people who were killed. Uh, with yeah. eight hundred uh, statues mm -hmm. painting. So as the, you can touch them as you oh, wow. and you can see them in Pike County and then the floor slopes and you are forced to look up. Oh wow. So uh, that yeah. And so, right, it's not, yeah. So I'd heard, I see people on Twitter saying, I wonder if my great-grandfather's name is there. That's, like, that's a really different engagement than, you know, going to visit, say, Emmett Till's, the symbolic register of Emmett Till's casket. 
Oh, wow. I've ever seen it with my little cardboard um, markers and the gin factory is, is actually more preserved where he was killed. Like little markers of this. And it's 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 almost you need like a, a, a movie crew to go in and say this is in modern history. When I ask my, my colleagues who teach American history, have you ever been there? Right. And they say no. I like you, you need that. You have to. Right, right. And I wonder who. Who goes to this museum? I know it just opened, but. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, I think that's probably my next step. And I went to collect a jar of herbs for someone I didn't know. Oh, wow. There were people from all over the country that did that as well. Yeah, I think I need to visit. That makes sense. That makes both visual, political, and cultural sense to me to have. This is an, another kind of immersive experience where, you know, you really do have to sit with it. And that's what I, I didn't find so much in the apartheid museum. So, mm -hmm. so overall, I think what does it mean to outsource death? Because yeah. that's what that is. You're outsourcing death to, yeah. to black people. Right, essentially. So death is a thing that's just been outsourced. Right, precisely. So what is that? I'm trying to wrap my mind around what that means. Mm -hmm. like, you know, if somebody would want that, like, what, what does that Why mean? Why would you, you do that? that? That's a great question. So I, so I kind of like Baldwin's quote about um, white naivete. You know, he says, like, white people have, you're looped in their naivete. They won't grow up. You can't move. Like, you're both locked in the same space, but that's because white people will not culturally grow up and acknowledge what has been taking place in their own country. I think that's what this does. It doesn't give white people the sense that they don't die, but it does give them the sense that their lives absolutely matter when they do. And that's a completely different relationship to, um, to their political social spaces. This is why people are calling the cops about it. Like, this is why, this is what that looks like. Because I can't say on Twitter, but I suspect that for some of them, they want to see a scene of violence and death, and they want to be at the center of that. Like, they want to see a black person arrested, a black person, you know, wrestled to the ground, a black person kicked, or a black person shot. Or why are you calling the police because they're around? Is it because you think you're entitled to that level of surveillance? Is it some kind of performance that you, you need to see? I don't know. But there's a level of desire there that is about both refusal and then that looping naivete where nobody gets to breathe, really. So I think that's what it does because it's inexplicable to me. So I've given presentations on the actual newspaper images, and I met with disbelief. Like, white people don't believe that there are no white people on the cover of the New York Times. And, but if they were there, I would have already had the names and the dates <laughs> like of, of all of those moments when they exist you know, on the cover. That's how infrequently. I don't think it'll be the case that they're never there. 
I think it's so infrequent, and it might as well not. But it's, uh, black people are not generally like, oh no, that's, that's so shocking. White people are like, what? There's no, how is that possible? And that's, that's the naivete that black people have to live in, which is why it just keeps looping around. And that's what I think these images do. Thank you.